Chapter 1. Three Old Ideas and a New One. Introduction. Education is one of the greatest consumers of public money in the Western world, and it employs a larger workforce than almost any other social agency. The goals of the education system, to enhance the competitiveness of nations and the self-fulfillment of citizens, are supposed to justify the immense investment of money and energy. School, that business of sitting at a desk among 30 or so others, being talked at, mostly boringly, and doing exercises, tests, and worksheets, mostly boringly, for years and years and years, is the instrument designed to deliver these expensive benefits. Despite or because of the vast expenditures of money and energy, finding anyone inside or outside the education system who is content with its performance is difficult. Many task forces, commissions, and reports have documented the inadequacies of schools throughout the Western world and have proposed even more numerous remedies. The diagnoses of illness are so many and the recommended remedies so varied that politicians and educational authorities cannot address the evident deficiencies with much confidence of success or of general support. Consider the community school along with other major institutions that developed into their modern forms in the latter part of the 19th century. The factory, the hospital, the prison, and the school have become prominent and integral components of 20th century societies in the West. The factory and the hospital are generally accepted as successful institutions. There may be arguments about whether American, Scandinavian, or Japanese styles of manufacturing are more efficient or socially desirable, or about iatrogenic diseases and spiraling healthcare costs, but generally these institutions are viewed as being well designed to achieve their proper aims. Prisons are more problematic. They were developed in the West to achieve two aims, to punish and to rehabilitate. The problem is, these aims are not entirely compatible. The more a conscientious civil servant tries to achieve one, the more difficult it is to do the other. In the case of the modern school, three distinctive aims have attended its development. It is expected to serve as a significant agency in socializing the young, to teach particular forms of knowledge that will bring about a realistic and rational view of the world, and to help realize the unique potential of each child. These goals are generally taken to be consistent with one another, somewhat overlapping, and mutually supportive. As shown later in this chapter, however, each of these aims is incompatible in profound ways with the other two. As with prison's aims to punish and to rehabilitate, the more we work to achieve one of the school's aims, the more difficult it becomes to achieve the others. The Three Old Ideas The first idea, socialization. Central to any educational scheme is initiation of the young into the knowledge, skills, values, and commitments common to the adult members of the society. Oral cultures long ago invented techniques to ensure that the young would efficiently learn and remember the social group store of knowledge and would also take on the values that sustain the structure of the society and establish the sense of identity of its individual members. Prominent among these techniques was the use of rhyme, rhythm, meter, and vivid images. Perhaps the most powerful technique invented, and the greatest of all social inventions, was the coding of lore into stories. This had the dual effect of making the contents more easily remembered, crucial in cultures where all knowledge had to be preserved in living memories, and of shaping the hearer's emotional commitment to those contents. One could ensure greater cohesiveness within the social group by coding the lore that was vital to one's society into stories be it proper kinship relations and appropriate behavior, economic activities, property rights, class status, or medical knowledge and its application. The young have a remarkable plasticity to adapt to an indeterminate range of cultural forms, beliefs, and patterns of behavior. The central task of socialization is to inculcate a restricted set of norms and beliefs, the set that constitutes the adult society the child will grow into. Societies can survive and maintain their sense of identity only if a certain degree of homogeneity is achieved in shaping its members. Quote, Education perpetuates and reinforces this homogeneity by fixing in the child 
from the beginning the essential similarities that collective life demands. End quote. Whoever governs the initiation process, the storytellers or the Ministry of Education and the school board, acts to promote the norms and values that are dominant in the society at large. Their job is to perform the homogenizing task Durkheim refers to. If a school today in Cuba or Iran routinely graduated liberal, capitalist entrepreneurs, it would be considered a disaster. In Winnipeg, Wigan, Wabash, and Wollongong, this would not be considered so bad. Indeed, what would be considered outrageous in Iran is the deliberate aim of Wollongong schools. The process of socialization is central to the mandate of schools today. Our schools have the duty to ensure that students graduate with an understanding of their society and of their place and possibilities within it, that they have the skills required for its perpetuation, and that they hold its values and commitments. While we might not feel comfortable with the term, we accept that a prominent aim of schools is the homogenization of children. The spokespersons of governments, taxpayers, and businesses that require the schools to produce a skilled workforce of good citizens today echo those who learned long ago the techniques for reproducing in the young the values and beliefs, the skills and lore, that best contribute to the untroubled perpetuation of the tribe. The public voices that associate education primarily with jobs, the economy, and the production of good citizens reflect a predominantly socializing emphasis. The very structure of modern schools in the West, with its age cohorts, class groupings, team sports, and so on, encourages conformity to modern Western social norms. Such structures can accommodate only a very limited range of nonconformity. Students learn, more or less, to fit in for their own good. We need not see this process of socialization and homogenization as the dehumanizing right-wing conspiracy it was exposed to be by 1960s romantic radical writers on education. Of course, pushed to the extremes, which is where the radicals consider the typical public school to be, the socially necessary homogenizing process can become totalitarian in its demands for conformity. But most pluralistic Western societies try to build defenses against those who are most eager to censor children's reading or restrict their behavior and shape their beliefs excessively. The socialization of the young is also evident in the efforts to promote useful knowledge and skills through courses on consumer education, anti-drug use, and automobile maintenance. Sometimes the proponents argue that schools graduate students only when they are equipped to do a job. I have kept an old letter published in an Ann Landers column from someone who signed, sadly, as too soon old, too late smart. The letter expresses frustration with schools in which, quote, our children are subjected to 12 years of education without learning how to conduct themselves in real-life situations, end quote, and suggests that schools introduce a course on the consequences of shoplifting, that several days a week be devoted to the subject of the hazards of cigarette smoke, that there must be instruction in the dangers of alcoholism, that sex education be a must in every school, and that there be courses on life with how-to instructions on settling arguments, expressing anger and hostility, handling competitive feelings involving brothers and sisters, coping with alcoholic parents, and dealing with funny uncles and passes made by homosexual peers. The writer acknowledges the importance of algebra and geometry in the curriculum, but argues that information on how to handle one's life should take precedence. Too soon old, too late smart expresses very clearly how the curriculum would be changed if socializing were made more prominent in the school's mandate. Those who share this view see the school as primarily a social agency that should accommodate society's changing needs. Recently, their voices have been prominent in demands that students become familiar with computers and their range of applications. They support counseling programs and like to see school counselors working along with parents to help students adjust to the strains and challenges of modern society. Sports, travel, exchanges, visits to monuments and courts and government buildings 
and social studies activities that help students understand their local environment all tend to be supported as helping to socialize the young. The teacher is seen as an important social worker, primarily valuable as a role model who exemplifies the values, beliefs, and norms of the dominant society. Knowledge of subject matter cannot substitute for character, wholesomeness, and easy and open communication with students. The second idea, Plato and the truth about reality. Plato, circa 428 to 347 BCE, had a radically different idea about how people should be educated. He wrote the Republic as a kind of elaborate prospectus for his academy. Not conforming with the best modern advertising practice, he laid out his ideas in a manner that involved constantly arguing the inadequacy of the forms of education offered by his competitors. Plato wanted to show that the worldly wise, well-socialized, practical person equipped with all the skills of a good and effective citizen was not only an educationally inadequate ideal, but actually a contemptible one. The assertive and confident Thrasymachus of the Republic and the worldly wise Callicles of the Gorgias are shown to be other than the masters of affairs they seem. In fact, they are slaves of conventional ideas. In contrast, the ability to reflect on ideas, to pull them this way and that until some bedrock of truth and certainty is established, was the promised result of the curriculum described in the Republic and offered in Plato's Academy. Plato certainly wanted the graduates of his school to be politically active and to change the world, but first they had to understand it. Plato's revolutionary idea was that education should not be concerned primarily with equipping students to develop the knowledge and skills best suited to ensuring their success as citizens and sharing the norms and values of their peers. Rather, education was to be a process of learning those forms of knowledge that would give students a privileged, rational view of reality. Only by disciplined study of increasingly abstract forms of knowledge, guided by a kind of spiritual commitment, could the mind transcend the conventional beliefs, prejudices, and stereotypes of the time and come to see reality clearly. Now this hasn't been everyone's cup of tea by any means, but Plato succeeded in expressing his central idea with such clarity, force, vividness, and imaginative wit that everyone who has written about education in the West has been profoundly influenced by it. Who, after all, wants to live and die a prisoner to conventional prejudices and stereotypes, never seeing the world as it really is? And how can one know when one is dealing with reality, rather than with illusions and stereotypes? Plato's claim that his academic curriculum alone can carry the mind to rationality and a secure access to reality has been so influential that we can hardly imagine a conception of education without it. Indeed, Nearly everyone today takes it for granted that schools should attend to the intellectual cultivation of the young in ways that are not justified simply in terms of social utility. We include in the curriculum a range of subject matter that we assume will do something valuable for students' minds and give them a more realistic grasp of the world. We consider it important to teach them that Saturn is a planet that orbits the sun rather than have them believe it is a wandering star erratically orbiting the earth and influencing their daily fortune by its association with other stars. We teach divisions of fractions, algebra, drama, ancient history, and much else for which most students will never have a practical need. The place of such topics in the curriculum is usually justified in vague terms such as educational value. In Plato's ideal, the mind is what it learns, so selecting the content of the curriculum is vital. How then is the Platonic idea of education represented today? One prominent conception can be introduced through an image suggested by astronomer Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan has been a prominent organizer of the search for signs of extraterrestrial intelligence with radio telescopes. This program assumes a vividly romantic picture of a conversation 
among intelligent beings in our galaxy, which we are just now developing the technology to enter. By plugging in, we might suddenly have access to a conversation of unimaginable richness and wonder. In a more immediately possible sense, modern proponents of the platonic idea of education suggest that accessing a transcendent conversation is precisely what education does for the individual. Michael Oakeshott, for example, represents education as entry into a conversation that began long ago in the jungles and plains of Africa, gathered further voices, perspectives, and varied experience in the ancient kingdoms of the East, added distinctive voices and experience in ancient Greece and Rome, and continues to accumulate value to the present. The conversation is now one of immense richness, wonder, and diversity. An individual can live and die happily, be socialized harmoniously in his or her special milieu, but remain almost entirely ignorant of this great cultural conversation, as we will likely do with regard to Sagan's imagined galactic interchange. But if it were really there in radio waves across the galaxy, and we had the means to join it, would we not be foolish to ignore it? Would we not be impoverishing our experience? The task of education, in this view, is to connect children with the great cultural conversation that very definitely is there, and that transcends politics, special milieus, local experiences, and conventional sets of norms and values. To pass up the chance to engage in this conversation is to be like Proust's dog in the library, possibly content, but ignorant of the potential riches around us. Those who want the schools to connect children to this great cultural conversation and to serve as bastions of civilization against the cretinizing mindlessness of pop culture, these are the kind of terms they like, who want students to be engaged by the disinterested pursuit of truth through the hard academic disciplines that will make them knowledgeable, discriminating, and skeptical, give new voice to the idea Plato bequeathed to us. These are people who value Plato's idea more highly than the other two ideas. For these people, school is properly a place apart from society, a place dedicated to knowledge, skills, and activities that are of persisting value, transcending the requirements of current social life. Indeed, what students learn is to establish the grounds from which they can judge the appropriateness of the values, norms, beliefs, and practices of society. Schools dominated by this idea consequently tend to be called elitist. Knowledge is valued less for its social utility than for its presumed benefit to the mind of the student. Thus, Latin has a higher status than automobile maintenance. Modern, neoconservative promoters of the platonic idea, whose slogan is excellence in education, direct their outrage particularly at students' ignorance of their cultural heritage and downplay programs that do not serve a specific academic purpose. Teachers tend to occupy a more distant, authoritative, and even authoritarian role because they properly embody the authority that comes from being an expert in the relevant subject matter. The third idea, Rousseau and Nature's Guidance. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, 1712 to 1778, viewed current educational practice as disastrous. He was happy to acknowledge that Plato's Republic is the finest treatise on education ever written, but he concluded that when dull pedagogues took hold of Plato's idea, they took the forms of knowledge that made up the curriculum, organized those into what seemed the best logical order, then beat them into the students. The typical result was misery, violence, and frustration, a syndrome not unknown today, though we may mark some success, influenced by Rousseau, at reducing the physical violence inflicted on children in the name of education. Pedagogues, Rousseau observed, quote, are always looking for the man in the child without considering what he is before he becomes a man, end quote. In Emile, he focused attention instead on the nature of the developing child, concentrating less on what ought to be learned and more on what children at different ages are capable of learning and on how learning might proceed most effectively. He saw his book Emile as a kind of supplement to the Republic, 
rectifying its major omission and updating the master's work. But as we'll see, Emile was built on assumptions profoundly at odds with Plato's. Quote, the internal development of our faculties and organs is the education of nature. The use we learn to make of this development is the education of men. End quote. So, to be able to educate, we must first understand that internal development process. The most important area of educational study, then, is the nature of students' development, learning, and motivation. The more we know about these, the more efficient and humane we can make the educational process. The key is that underlying natural development. Quote, fix your eye on nature. Follow the path traced by her. End quote. As nature was to be our guide, and Rousseau clearly believed the nature of males and females to be significantly different, nature dictated a quite different education for Sophie from that of Emile, an education that encouraged the, quote, domination and violation of women, end quote. Emile, published in 1762, was promptly ordered to be burned in Paris and Geneva. This, no doubt, helped sales considerably, as it went from printing to printing. The sentimental image of the child likely helped the book's popularity, too even while Rousseau himself was dispatching his own unwanted children to foundling hospitals. But the rhetorical force of Emile carried Rousseau's ideas across Europe. In more recent times, John Dewey and Jean Piaget have been profoundly influenced by Rousseau, and the degree to which their ideas have affected practice is one index of his continuing influence. Careful observation and study of students, recognition of the distinctive forms of learning and sense-making that characterize different ages, Construction of methods of teaching that engage students' distinctive forms of learning. Emphasis on individual differences among learners. The encouragement of active rather than passive learning. The insistence that a student's own discovery is vastly more effective than the tutor's words, 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 are all features of Rousseau's educational scheme. While it would be false to claim him as the originator of all these ideas, he did bring them together into a powerful and coherent conception of education. These are ideas that have become a part of the common sense taken-for-granted folklore of so many educators today, it would now be considered strange not to recognize the importance of students' varying learning styles, the value of methods of teaching that encourage students' active inquiry, and the significant differences among students at different ages. The modern voices that encourage schools to focus on fulfilling the individual potential of each student, that emphasize that students should learn how to learn as a higher priority than amassing academic knowledge, that support programs in critical thinking, that evaluate educational success not in terms of what knowledge students have acquired, so much as in terms of what they can do with what they know, reflect this third educational idea. Here the focus of education is the experience of the child. The construction of a common core curriculum for all children, therefore, is not simply undesirable, but actually impossible. Each child's experience, even of the same curriculum content, is necessarily different. We should recognize this and let the unique experience and needs of each child be the determiner of the curriculum, even to the radical point of making the curriculum a response to the questions students raise. The educator's attention should be focused on the individual development of each child and on the provision of the experiences that can optimally further this development. The commonest expression of this idea today combines the variously interpreted progressivism of John Dewey with Piaget's developmentalism and the psychologizing of the study of children the modern form of discovering their nature that Rousseau recommended. In the classroom and outside it, discovery learning is valued, manipulables and museums are recommended for students' exploration, discussion is encouraged, project work by individuals or groups is provided for, careful attention is given to the results of empirical studies of children's learning, development, and motivation, and teaching and curricula are adjusted to conform with such research findings. 
Teachers are not authorities so much as facilitators, providers of the best resources, shapers of the environment in which students will learn. Incompatibilities. Are these three ideas really incompatible? Can we not find a way of addressing these somewhat distinct aims for education without having them undermine one another? Why can we not socialize students to prevailing norms and values, ensure that they accumulate the kind of knowledge that will give a truer view of the world, and help them to fulfill their potential at each stage of development? A rigorous academic program surely does not conflict with society's needs, and facts about learning, development, and motivation surely help us better implement both the academic program and socialization. At least, Plato's concern with the what of education does not seem to be at war with Rousseau's concern with the how. Don't they properly complement one another? Looked at in sufficiently general and vague a manner, it may indeed seem that these distinctive ideas are not as incompatible as I have been suggesting. The everyday business of schooling in Western societies has been going ahead on the assumption that evident problems are caused by improper management, poor teaching, genetic constraints on students' abilities to learn, or flawed curriculum organization, not to some profound theoretical incompatibility. But I think the incompatibility is there, and it is at the root of our practical problems. Let's consider each idea in turn with the others. Plato and socializing. The homogenizing aim of socialization, which is to reproduce in each student a particular set of beliefs, conventions, commitments, norms of behavior and values, is necessarily at odds with the process that aims to show their hollowness and inadequacy. They do, after all, form the glue that holds society's foundations in place. If Socrates was Plato's ideal of the educated person, it is evident why the democratic citizens of Athens condemned him to death. The radical skepticism that his kind of education engendered threatened the foundations of society. He was condemned for corrupting the youth. What he was corrupting, or corroding, was their acceptance of the tenets of society. His fellow citizens saw his behavior as a kind of treason. No one now believes that Plato's ideal aim of direct knowledge of the real, the true, the good, and the beautiful is attainable. What is attainable, though, is the skeptical, philosophical, informed mind that energetically inquires into the nature and meaning of things, that is unsatisfied by conventional answers, that repudiates belief in whatever cannot be adequately supported by good arguments or evidence, and that embodies the good-humored corrosive of Socratic irony. This kind of consciousness has not often been greatly valued by those who govern societies because it is a disruptive force. Everyday social life, particularly in complex modern economic systems, proceeds more smoothly and blandly without the irritant created by following Plato's educational prescription too closely. If people continually ask themselves, is this really the best way to live? They simply can't get on with day-to-day -day business in a single-minded, efficient manner. Of course, we want the promised benefits of both educational ideas. We want the social harmony and the psychological stability that successful socialization encourages. But we also want the cultivation of the mind, the skepticism, and the dedication to rationality that Plato's program calls for. Designing schools to achieve either one is difficult, but our schools today are supposed to do both. Rousseau and Plato If we see Plato as dealing with the what of education, and Rousseau with the how, then must the two ideas be considered incompatible? This common resolution of apparent conflicts would be fine, were it not the case that it falsely represents both ideas. The above compromise, leaving Plato's descendants with the content and aims of education, and Rousseau's with the methods, appeals to many as a neat division of labor. The educational philosophers can deal with content and aims, drawing on the knowledge generated by the educational psychologists about learning and development. It seems obvious that facts about students' development can blend with philosophers' research into the nature and structure of knowledge, 
to yield a more easily understood math or history curriculum. It seems obvious that such collaboration should be common. The fact that we see so little of it suggests there is something preventing it from taking place. One problem for the neat compromise is that, in the Rousseauian and Deweyian view, the means and ends of education are tied together. The means used in Rousseauian and Deweyian instruction are parts of their educational ends. They favor discovery procedures, for example, not because they are more efficient means to some distinct educational ends, but because they are a component of their educational ends. For example, in Rousseau's terms, discovery procedures disclose nature, and in doing so stimulate the development of a pure, uninfected reason. Or, as Dewey adapted the idea, discovery procedures mirror the scientific method, whose acquisition by students is a crucial component of their education. We have incorporated this idea of intertwined means and ends into our currently dominant conception of education. Put crudely, we recognize the inappropriateness of beating children who have failed to memorize a text on compassion. We feel a bit uncomfortable about compelling attendance at institutions that try to teach the values of liberty and democracy. And it is increasingly clear that choice of teaching method is not a simple strategic matter disconnected from our educational ends. In our educational means are our ends. In our educational ends are our means. Another problem follows from Plato and his descendants having their own conception of educational development. Students progress, in Plato's scheme, from the stages of Icasia to Pistis to Dianoa and Noesis. But these stages are interestingly different from Rousseau's and Piaget's. Plato's stages represent greater clarity and understanding. Education, in Plato's view, and in that of modern proponents of the academic idea, is marked by students' ability to master increasingly sophisticated knowledge, regardless of their supposed psychological development. For Rousseau and Piaget, the stages of psychological development are precisely what mark education and determine what kind of knowledge the student needs. As the development of the body proceeds almost regardless of the particular food it eats, so the mind will develop almost regardless of the particular knowledge it learns. For the Platonists, the only development of educational interest is the particular knowledge learned. The mind is not much else. So Rousseau and his modern followers are not simply making methodological or procedural recommendations that might allow us to do the Platonic academic job more efficiently. They are actually recommending a different job. Rousseau's idea is not one that yields an easy accommodation with Plato's. These ideas conflict, most profoundly in identifying the cause and dynamic of the educational process. In the Platonic ideal, learning particular forms of knowledge carries the educational process forward. Knowledge drives development. In the Rousseauian idea, education results from an internal, developmental process, unfolding within a supportive environment. Development drives knowledge, determining what knowledge is learnable, meaningful, and relevant. For Plato, education is a time-related epistemological process. For Rousseau, it is an age-related psychological process. We could design schools to implement either of these conceptions of education, but instead we require our schools to implement both. Our practical difficulties arise from accepting that both the Platonic and the Rousseauian ideas are necessary for education, but the more we try to implement one, the more we undermine the other. The conflict between these two ideas has been the basis of the continuing struggles between traditionalists and progressivists during the century. One sees them at odds in almost every media account of educational issues. The Platonic forces argue for basics and a solid academic curriculum, and the Rousseauians argue for relevance and space for students' exploration and discovery. A key battleground now is the elementary social studies curriculum in North America. The progressivists are defending the relevant focus on families, neighborhoods, communities, and interactions among communities, and the traditionalists are pressuring for a reintroduction of history and geography 
as mainstays of the curriculum, the progressivist forces argue that history and geography require abstract concepts and are not developmentally appropriate for young children. The traditionalists respond that any content can be made comprehensible if presented sensibly. Socializing and Rousseau When socialization is the primary aim of education, we derive our priorities from society's norms and values. In the Rousseauian view, however, we should keep the child from contact with society's norms and values as long as possible because they are, quote, one mass of folly and contradiction, end quote. If we want to let the nature of the child develop as fully as possible, we will constantly defend her or him against the shaping pressures of society. An aspect of this conflict is apparent today in many educators' attitudes to the general influence of television on children. TV is a powerful instrument in shaping a set of prominent social norms and values, but educators resist much of this shaping in favor of activities that seem to them less likely to distort proper or natural development. Natural is not, of course, the term much used today, but it lurks around the various ways the Rousseauian position is restated, as in a number of books that appeal to a conception of a more natural kind of childhood that is being distorted or suppressed by current forms of socialization. Some of the 1960s radicals were even plainer. Paul Goodman put it this way, quote, The purpose of elementary pedagogy, through age 12, should be to delay socialization, to protect children's free growth. We must drastically cut back formal schooling because the present extended tutelage is against nature and arrests growth, end quote. No one, of course, is simply on the side of Rousseau against socialization or vice versa. We all recognize that any developmental process has to be shaped by a particular society. Our problem originates with the attraction of Rousseau's ideas about a kind of development that honors something within each individual, something uninfected by the compromises, corruptions, and constrictions that social life so commonly brings with it. We do not have to share Rousseau's own disgust with society, which returned him high regard and money, to recognize the attraction of his ideas. There doesn't seem to be much room for compromise here. We can't sensibly aim to shape a child's development half from nature and half from society. To try to do so creates the same problems as half punishing and half rehabilitating the prisoner. Such treatments interfere with each other. By trying to compromise, we ensure only that neither is effective. There are, of course, a number of ways of seeing this conflict that do not lead to the conclusion of incompatibility I am arguing. We can solve the problem of observing that our nature is indeterminately plastic in our early years, and socialization is a condition of our nature being realized. We are, after all, social animals. There is no natural form that we will develop toward if we are kept apart from society. We can solve this conflict also by seeing it not as one between nature and society, but, much more simply, as the kind of disagreement one must expect in a pluralistic society. But the incompatibility I am concerned with arises only within the conception of education, and seems to me unavoidable so long as people conceive of children as going through some regular, spontaneous process of intellectual development that can be optimized if we shape their learning environment to suit it. One cannot derive one's educational principles, both from some conception of an ideal developmental process and from some current norms and values of adult society. They are bound to be incompatible, unless one lives in a perfect society. They are incompatible because socializing has a distinct end in view and is a shaping, homogenizing, narrowing process toward that end, whereas supporting the fullest development of student potential involves releasing students to explore and discover their uniqueness. This is an individualizing process that encourages distinctiveness, even to the point of eccentricity if necessary, and is expansive without predetermined ends.